This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Our scripture reading for today is taken from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up in my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down from there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elijah, the prophet who is who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, opened his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And the enemy came toward him. As, as the enemy came toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. As they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked. There they were, inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Will you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may drink and eat and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, as we listen to your holy word, open our hearts to the power of your spirit. Call us out of darkness and lead us into your marvelous light. Amen. On August the 6th, 1945, a ceremony was held in Moscow at the American Embassy, and the Young Pioneers Organization had a gift, a token of gratitude from the Russian Communist government to their American allies who had stood by them against the Nazi regime. It was an elaborate wooden carving about a meter and a half square of the great seal of the United States. You know, the eagle with his head turned, holding the olive branch and the Latin slogan beneath it. It was an absolutely beautiful carving. And the trusting American ambassador took this piece of artwork home to his residence and hung it on the wall above his desk in his private study. Six years later, in 1951, a radio technician at the British Embassy was fooling around with the dials and he heard on an open radio channel belonging to the Soviet Air Force a private conversation with American voices. 
And the Americans subsequently discovered as they carefully swept the ambassador's residence and finally took apart, actually hacked open this beautiful carving of the Great Seal that inside was a tiny device. It was a passive listening device. It was a new technology. It was not actually powered. But when the Soviets would irradiate the area with radio waves, they could somehow activate this device and hear the conversations that were happening. And perhaps the king of Aram might have wondered if there was some strange technology those sneaky Israelis had that was enabling them to listen to what was happening in his top-secret conferences. Because here the poor king is having meetings, top-secret meetings in the headquarters with his chiefs of staff. They've got the maps open. They're planning raids into Israel's territory. And every time, unaccountably, every time they send their special forces over the border, there's an Israelite force waiting, deployed, dug in, prepared. And to the bafflement of the king of Aram, this happens again and again and again. And as one of the characters in Ian Fleming's novel, Goldfinger, remarks to James Bond, Mr. Bond, once as happenstance, twice as coincidence, but three times is enemy action. Enemy action or there is a catastrophic breach of security at the very highest levels in Aram. The king is furious. He summons his top leaders and demands that the traitor confess, that the mole reveal himself. After a long pause, one of his officers coughs politely. It's not us, my lord the king, he says. It's this prophet, Elisha, in Israel. And he's telling their king even the words that you're whispering in your bedroom. I love, by the way, that this officer hadn't bothered to tell the king this piece of information previously. Like you think this would have come up at the beginning of the military planning thing. Oh, by the way, the king of Israel knows everything that's happening here because these guys might as well have broadcast their meetings on live television and beamed the signal across the border because apparently it's common knowledge, even in Aram, I mean, of course, the king is the last to know. It's so frustrating that Israel has a secret weapon. They've got a clairvoyant prophet that they're pointing towards the border to listen in on the conversations that are happening in Damascus. Through his divine gift, the prophet Elisha, the successor to Elijah, is he's basically sitting in their war room, taking notes, and then when the meeting's over, he's texting the king of Israel and forwarding the plans, so that Israel can respond accordingly. Not just once. This is happening over and over and over again, as our passage notes. Now, Elisha is an ordinary mortal. He doesn't have these powers because he was bitten by a radioactive spider. He is a prophet of the Lord God of Israel. And God knows everyone's secrets. I hope that's not a horrible surprise for anyone this afternoon. God knows everyone's secrets. The fancy Latin term is that God is omniscient. God knows everything. God knows absolutely everything that has happened in the past. He knows everything that is happening in the present. And God knows everything that will happen or could happen in the future. Without exception. God knows every one of the stars by name. And he counts every single hair on our heads. His understanding is beyond 
measure. That means that God is never surprised. God is never startled. God is never taken aback. Back in the year 2000, the website McSweeney's Internet Tendency published a list of sentences that have never been uttered before in human history. And the one that stuck with me over the years was this. Look out, God, behind you! (laughs) As though God could ever have anyone sneak up on him and be surprised or startled. And I want to emphasize that it's only God who is omniscient. It's only God who knows everything. The forces of good and evil are not equally matched. And sometimes we speak as though Satan is God's equal and God's opposite, as though the devil has these powers, as though he could read our minds, as though he knows everything that's going on. Of course, the devil is a super intelligent being, extremely cunning and crafty, far more clever than anyone in this room. But yet, Satan is only a creature. He only has limited knowledge. And clever as he is, the devil is still basically guessing, trying to figure out God's plans, uncertain as to how everything is going to reach its end. And meanwhile, there is no plot hatched in the deepest pit of hell that God does not already know about and that he has not already taken measures to defeat even before the powers of evil attempt to put their plans into execution. God is completely sovereign because he knows everything. So here is the prophet of God, Elisha, who's been gifted this knowledge and armed with this information given to him by God. He warns the king again and again and again. Now we can deduce that the king in this passage, assuming that 2 Kings is written in chronological order, is... Ahab and Jezebel's son, Jehoram. He was not as wicked as his mom and dad, which would basically have been impossible because they were absolutely atrocious, evil people. But King Jehoram is not King David either. He's friendly with Elisha when things are going well, but as we'll discover in 2 Kings, should we read further, that when things are going badly, when the city's besieged and everyone's starving, he's ready to behead the prophet. And 2 Kings records that he was an evil king who led the people into sin. And yet, God is warning this king again and again and again. Just one more example in Scripture of the mercy and faithfulness of God to Israel, to a king and to a nation following and imitating him, who are basically undeserving of such repeated mercy from God. And the reason that God warns and protects and guards and guides is not because Israel is such a great nation, They're really no better than Aram or any other nation on earth, not because their kings are much better. In fact, the whole Old Testament is the sorry, depressing, discouraging story of how God's people again and again fall short in faith. They rebel. They're idolatrous. And if any of you have made the effort to trudge through the whole Old Testament, it feels wearying and repetitive because this happens over and over again. And it's like God's kind of reminding us, yeah, you're kind of weary and repetitive yourself in your own lack of faith and your own rebellion and your own idolatry, but I am a merciful and faithful God. Well, the king of Aram is furious and appalled that 
The words that he's been whispering in secret are being shouted on the rooftops across the frontier. He finds out where Elisha is, and he assembles a strike force to make a raid across the border to extract the prophet and bring him to Damascus. I don't know what his intentions were. Perhaps he wanted to interrogate the prophet to turn him, perhaps, and get him onto his own service. What a powerful intelligence technology Elisha would be to have on your side. Perhaps he just wants to permanently neutralize this threat. Anyways, the king assembles this fast, strong strike force, horses and chariots to make a speedy in-and-out raid across the border in the dead of night, like all special operations. And they're going to be there to surround the little town of Dothan before dawn. Now, of course, if the king had fought for five minutes, he would have realized this plan could not possibly have worked. I mean, the whole problem is that Elisha is listening to everything they're planning. So here he is talking out loud, making yet another plan. And of course, Elisha will know this plan as well. He's already broadcast this secret commando raid, and the king and all Israel knows what's about to happen, and surely Elisha will take steps to evade capture and be far away from Dothan by dawn. The next morning, Elisha appears to be sleeping. His servant gets up early to get the pastries, to get the coffee for the prophet. And when he opens the front door for his early morning errand, he's horrified to see that their little town has been surrounded by a massive army that has somehow just materialized in the middle of the night, and the city is now cut off and in deadly danger. And the servant wakes up Elijah and urgently asks him, Master, what shall we do? The prophet is not phased in the slightest. The enemy's here, right on schedule just as Elisha knew. The prophet had known exactly where and what and when this event was going to happen. And yet, he's taken no evasive action whatsoever. The prophet is totally calm. He's completely unperturbed because he knows that God is in control. So he tells his hyperventilating servant, slow down, calm down, breathe into this paper bag, Don't be afraid. Don't worry about it. There's more on our side than on their side. Don't be afraid. Fear not. The most repeated command in the Bible. Because it turns out that Elisha's servant is not some weird edge case. He's not the only person in the Bible who needs this assurance. Not by a long shot. In fact, all of us need to hear these words again and again. God himself, saying through his word, don't be afraid. Fear not. Why are you so anxious, little flock? Because we're all prone to panic, aren't we? We come here and we sing and we lift our arms and we proclaim these great words about God and then we go home and we freak out when terrible things seem like they're about to happen to us. Don't be afraid, Elisha says. But he gives a reason. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. This is not about pretending that there's no one against us. Elisha's not waving away the enemy or pretending they don't exist. And we need to remind ourselves there is a malevolent enemy arrayed against us. There are supernatural evil forces that are seeking our destruction. They're watching over us unblinkingly while we sleep plotting ways to drag us down into the darkness and destroy us forever. We don't know 
the half of it. We don't know 10% of the evil things organized against us, which honestly is probably just as well that God hides most of that from us. The point isn't that the enemy isn't real. The point is that the Lord and his army are far greater and more powerful than the enemy. It was Corey ten Boom who observed in Scripture, it says that only a third of the angels fell with Satan. Only a third of the stars fell from heaven, which means, with some very basic math, that for every demon, there are two angels. And then Elisha has a prayer, a simple, powerful prayer for his servant. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. The problem is that this young man's perception is limited. It's like he's visually impaired. He's got these blinders on, and he's able to see only the physical reality, what's right in front of his face. But there's so much that he's missing. He's missing what is most important and most real. And so Elisha prays, and God answers him, and he opens the inner eye of the prophet's servant, and when his eyes are opened, this young man is astonished to see that the whole mountainside is full of horses and chariots of fire surrounding Elisha. We are far safer than we realize. We are far safer than we realize. Because the Lord surrounds his people with invisible protection. And between us and between the enemy, there is a fiery circle that evil cannot cross. And in our limited vision, we're overwhelmed and dismayed by the threats around us. And if only our eyes were a little stronger, if only our perception was a little more powerful, we would understand that no weapon formed against us can prosper. Not because we're so strong or because we're so courageous. We are small. We are weak. We would be crushed in a moment. It's because God is with us. And I just want to point out that this heavenly army was there even before Elisha prayed for the servant. It didn't materialize the moment he prayed. It was already there the entire time. The servant just needed God to make him aware of this reality. And in his grace, sometimes for some people, God gives us just a glimpse that we're under heavy protection. Michelle was reminding me today of a story when she was a little girl, a little toddler, one or two years old, and her mom was working at the church office, and the office was at the top of a long flight of concrete stairs, and there was a baby gate at the top of the stairs, but there was another little kid who kept on opening the gate. And Michelle wandered over there, and before her mom could grab her, Michelle fell through the gate down the stairs. And then Michelle's mom saw an angel wrap his body around her daughter and kind of absorb the blow as she fell down the stairs. And here's my wife sitting here without brain damage at this very moment, protected by God. And actually, those kind of things are happening all the time. I mean... Some of us are putting much more heavy demands on our guardian angels than others, especially little kids who seem determined to kill themselves one way or the other. Some of our guardian angels must be very exhausted by now, but we're being protected because God has sent them to keep us safe. Psalm 91, if you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. 
For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This is why Elisha is not afraid. It's not because he's some superhuman with massive reserves of courage who can look death in the face and laugh. Elisha is just more aware than his servant of what's really happening. God is in complete control. The prophet and his servant are totally safe. And there's actually nothing to be worried about. Then Elisha prays a second prayer. Strike this army with blindness. And God does, just like God had done with the violent mob surrounding Lot's house in Sodom in the book of Genesis. You know that the God who has the power to open eyes has the power to close them as well. He can flip it on. He can flip it off. I don't know if any of you know the story of Brother Andrew. I think he's in his 90s now, but he had a ministry called Open Doors, and he would go across the Iron Curtain in the communist days to meet with believers in the communist world and to bring them Bibles. And he was crossing over into Romania. There were four cars ahead of him. He'd gone through the border, no problem before. But then the guards began to stop the cars and take much more time meticulously searching each of the cars. The fourth car, the car right in front of him, the guards took an hour over. They completely dismantled it. They took off the hubcaps. They removed the seats. They disassembled the engine. And there Brother Andrew is, right behind them. He's got a back seat full of Bibles with a blanket covering them, sweating heavily. And he began to pray as he had never prayed before. And he realized, there's no cleverness of my own that can possibly get me out of this frightful situation. And he asked for a miracle. And that was the first time he prayed a prayer he would often pray, crossing these dangerous borders with Scripture. Lord, in my luggage, I have Scripture that I want to take to your children. When you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now, I pray, make seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see those things you do not want them to see. And then he pulled the blanket away. As an act of trust in God, he just scattered very clearly beside him on the front seat all this Christian literature and Scriptures. And then he was waved forward. The guard glanced into the car, looked at his passport, and waved him on. And as he drove away in his rearview mirror, he could see them making the person behind him get out of the car as they were about to spend another hour taking that car apart. We are far more safe than we realize. And if we are in the center of God's will, doing what God wants us to do, nothing can touch us. So Elisha prays, and the Aramean's eyes are somehow dazzled. They're not just blinded. They seem to be in this really weird state of confusion. And they're oddly open to manipulation and to suggestion. And the prophet, completely unarmed, walks out of the city gate toward these soldiers who were sort of wandering around the hillside. And he says to them, these are not the droids you were looking for. (laughs) Sorry, this is not the road. This is not the road. This is not the road. This is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man that you're looking for. And this prophet, in his sandals and in his robes, marches this befuddled commando unit with their horses and their chariots 11 miles up the road to Samaria, the capital city, right into the king's fortress. And only once the heavy iron gate has been shut behind them and securely locked, Elisha prays his third prayer in our passage. Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. The fog in these guys' brains clears. Their eyes are open. And to their horror, 
They're inside Samaria, I assume, surrounded by a circle of spears pointed at their throats. And then when the king of Israel sees them, and notice, by the way, the only person named in this story is Elisha. And comparing it to passages before and behind, we can make a reasoned guess that the king of Aram is Ben-Hadad and the king of Israel is Jehoram. But our storyteller doesn't even mention their names. Perhaps it was because they hadn't filled out their name tag. But more likely, it's that in God's view of history, the kings and rulers of the world, the people who seem clothed with so much power and seem to be in command of this world's destiny, who build these monuments to themselves, in the eyes of God, these people are not even worth mentioning. These people that we are so frightened of and impressed by. The only name worth mentioning to God is the name of the man or the woman, those who are part of the small remnant whose eyes are fixed on the invisible, who are fulfilling the only will in this world that matters, God's. Whatever his name, the king of Israel is childishly eager to murder these POWs. Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Please, please, please. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. He will never have an easier enemy to destroy. But Elisha sternly forbids this kind of action. He commands the king to feed these foreign soldiers a good meal and then send them on their way. It's an act of trust, isn't it? Because if Israel really is surrounded by heavenly horses and chariots of fire, then these soldiers cannot possibly harm God's people. And in fact, at the conclusion of her story, when they do go back to Damascus and tell the king of Aram their strange and somewhat embarrassing story, they're all so dispirited that no more raiding parties are sent over into Israel's territory. How can you fight against a people with such a God? You know, the story is set somewhere around 845 BC. But First and Second Kings are actually written to the exiles hundreds of years later to God's unbelieving, rebellious, idolatrous people who are deep within enemy territory, where God seems far away, where the enemy seems hopelessly powerful. And what an encouragement this story must have been to them, to know that even in the land of the enemy, God sees, God knows, and God is protecting. And here we are, brothers and sisters, the people of God, centuries even after this. And we too need our eyes to be opened, don't we? Faith is the conviction of things not seen. And we're called to live on eternal realities. And Sunday after Sunday, we gather to sing songs of praise to a God we cannot see, to hear the word of a God that we cannot see, And we need the Holy Spirit again and again to give us the deep conviction that this God is real. He is alive. He is present. He is speaking. He is ruling. And he is acting. We're not meant to be prisoners of the hopes or the fears of this present world, which is rapidly passing away. We seek the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. God is not asking anyone here to stir up their imagination and try to create in their minds some point of contact with some ghostly, ethereal, half-real and half-unreal place. What we need is the conviction that 
God and his world are actually more real and more solid and have deeper foundations than what is right in front of our faces. And only a miracle of the Holy Spirit can do that in our hearts. God wants all of us to take comfort this afternoon that his angels are surrounding us and protecting us. We have fears, we have troubles, we have anxieties. And God is not asking us to wave any of that away or pretend that the enemy is not real or that those things are not difficult or painful. They are. But our God is strong, and our God loves us, and our God is protecting us. And he has sent a whole army of angels sent to us as ministering spirits to serve those who will inherit salvation, according to Hebrews 1. And yet, although we're told about angels here and there in Scripture, that's not what God wants us to focus on. Angels and demons are doing their business up in the heavenly realms, but they're meant to be, at best, in our peripheral vision. God's taking care of all that. We don't need to worry about it. God does want us to fix our eyes on the one who is far superior even to the angels, even to these horses and chariots of fire. And that is Jesus, the Son of God, who sits and reigns at the Father's right hand. I want to remind you this afternoon that Jesus has been appointed head over all things for the sake of his church, according to Ephesians. And he has defeated the enemy of God and of all of us overwhelmingly through the cross and through his resurrection. The forces arrayed against us are many. The enemy is strong. But do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And the one who will never leave us or forsake us is supreme over all evil. So shall we bow our heads and pray that God would open our eyes to see these realities? King Jesus, healer of the blind, we ask that you would place your fingers on our eyes today, the inner eye of faith, and help us to see, to awaken us to what is truly real and solid and lasting and eternal. Most of all, Lord, we ask that you would help us to behold you supreme, serene, unperturbed, in absolute, total, exalted dominion over all things. Lord, we see the enemy surrounding us, seeking to destroy us, roaring and prowling and seeking our doom. We thank you, Lord, that you are stronger, that you are mightier, that you are greater. Stir up and strengthen our faith by your Holy Spirit so that we would not be afraid. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.